very often what happens in discussions of the Holocaust is a, is a shortcut is taken. One says, well, it was all about Hantism, and one refers to Hitler. Fine, but that actually isn't the answer. That's the question. The, the answer to the question of how the Holocaust happened is not anti-Semitism. That's only part of the question. We have to work our way from that radical view into German politics, into human sensibilities, and then beyond Germany. That's Timothy Snyder, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Timothy Snyder on the Holocaust. Where does one start when talking about the Holocaust? The word derives from the Greek, a burnt offering, a sacrifice by fire. It is one of the greatest crimes in human history. And we are cautioned to learn the lessons of the Holocaust. Historian Timothy Snyder argues that the history that we might understand is rather different than the history that we generally remember, and that if we did it right, the lessons that we draw from the present and the future would be different lessons than the ones we draw now. And that's important, Snyder says, because whether we like it or not, we are already drawing lessons from the Holocaust. We do it all the time. But what if we understand the Holocaust incompletely or even incorrectly? Then we've drawn the wrong lessons, and we may be accelerating disaster rather than preventing it. Our guest today is Timothy Snyder. He's Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale University and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, Austria. He's the author of Black Earth, On Tyranny, and Our Melody. This classic program was recorded at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, in 2015. We air it to mark Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day. And now, Timothy Snyder. It is a commonplace that in order to understand the Holocaust, one must begin with Hitler. But returning to the primary sources, rereading Mein Kampf, rereading the second book, rereading the speeches, the addresses, I noticed a coherence, um, a total quality to the ideas, which I hadn't noticed before, and which I think perhaps eludes us in general. And I'd like to begin with that. I'd like to begin with a short summary of what Hitler's anti-Semitism actually was. This is important. Because when one considers Hitler's anti-Semitism, it's not just a matter of someone being more anti-Semitic than other people, right? It's not just a transitive issue. This person is more anti-Semitic, this is more anti-Semitic, this is more anti-Semitic. It's not like that. There are qualitative differences in the kinds of anti-Semitism that people believe in, that people work from. And in Hitler's case, what we have is what I would think of as a planetary anti-Semitism, a chain of reasoning at the end of which there's only one possible conclusion, and that is the eradication of the Jews. Hitler starts from the premise that we as human beings are races, that races are like species, and what species do is compete for land and food so they can propagate. He takes that as being the only true thing about the world. It's a law of nature, he says in Mein Kampf, like a law of physics. It's as certain, he says, as the law of gravity. Why might we think otherwise? Why might we be under the impression that friendship or love or marriage or law or the state or a political party or any other commitment to human reciprocity exists, has weight, matters, or should matter? Why might we think such things? The answer, Hitler says, is the Jews. 
The Jews are responsible, and this is the radical character of Hitler's claim, the Jews are responsible for every idea of human reciprocity which distracts us from racial solidarity. From Hitler's point of view, all we should be doing is recognizing who belongs to our race and who does not, and fighting on behalf of our race against everyone else, taking land from everyone else, starving them to death, propagating on what had been their territory. That is all we should be doing. Any intellectual distraction from that, says Hitler, is Jewish. Any. So Christianity and communism, say Hitler, are fundamentally the same idea. St. Paul, says Hitler, is the same person as Leon Trotsky. Because any idea, whether it's working class solidarity or Christian mercy, which allows people to engage each other as human beings, is of Jewish origin. Whether it's a contract, a a difficult problem of translating these ideas into practice. What he offers instead is a kind of substitute for science. What he offers instead is the idea of Lebensraum, living space. Lebensraum is the alternative to science. What Hitler does is he, he, he argues that, in fact, if you're experiencing anxiety about food, that's right. If you're experiencing a sense of catastrophe, that's correct. We have to welcome ecological panic because that is, in fact, the authentic human experience of the world. Panic is absolutely normal. Any idea that you ought not to be panicking about shortages has been put in your head by Jews, right? So panic is normal, and the resolution to panic is what he calls Lebensraum. The thing which will work when science doesn't work is Lebensraum. Now, what does he mean by Lebensraum? Well, in general, you know what he means. It means habitat. It means what we might say now is ecological niche. Lebensraum is a space where a certain group of people, another race, lives. And in the simplest form, this idea just means that Germans should go to someone else's habitat, starve them out, take their land, and propagate. That's the simplest version. But in a more specific version, Lebensraum intersects with his general ideas about Jews. Because one of his notions, and it's a popular idea then, and it remains surprisingly popular now, one of his ideas was that Jews were communists and communists were Jews. This was called, in, in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, this was called the Judeo-Bolshevik idea, that, or the Judeo-communist idea. The Jews are communists and communists are Jews. Now, what that means is that there's a specific political construction, the Soviet Union, which is in Eastern Europe, which is going to be vulnerable, why? It's vulnerable because it's a Jewish state. And if Germany seeks its living space in the East against the Soviet Union, there's a kind of double opportunity. The Soviet Union will crack upon contact with Germany because it's just a Jewish state. And so a war will have been won against Jewish world domination in destroying the Soviet Union. But meanwhile, Germany will be able to seize the fertile territory of Ukraine which is the specific geographical location of Lebensraum. Ukraine was and remains, incidentally, one of the most fertile territories in, in the world. And the idea was that Ukraine would allow Germany to become self-sufficient, it would allow Germans to become prosperous, and it would, it would move Germany into the ranks of the world economic and political powers. So the conquest of Ukraine would change, would change Germans. Now, here we take a step even closer to politics, right? So maybe you're beginning to feel the appeal of responding to anxiety, right? Maybe you can understand a little bit how a country such as Germany, which did not in fact feed itself 
and could not, in fact, have fed itself from its own territory without giving up its industry, a country which had been blockaded during the First World War and indeed after the First World War by the Entente powers, um, a country which had to rely on unreli- inherently unreliable international markets for food, why a sense of anxiety might, in fact, resonate. That's one step towards politics. Here's the next step. Lebensraum has another meaning. The other meaning of Lebensraum, aside from habitat, is something more like living room. So what we would say in American English, living room, a comfortable place, a place where you might take your meals, um, a place where you could put your feet up, where the slippers are, or maybe the fireplace is. So Lebensraum has another meaning. I don't just mention this as a kind of semantic curiosity. I mention it because it's inherent in the use of the word itself. When Hitler talks about Lebensraum, he is simultaneously saying two things. He is saying, we must struggle to destroy inferior races and take their land in order to survive, right? So he is he's arousing what we might call survivalist emotions. At the same time, what he is saying is, and literally at the same time, in the same sentence or in the next sentence he is saying, we must take other people's land in order to have a high standard of living in order to have a standard of living which is not lower than that of the United States of America, which is a connection that he makes extremely explicitly and one must admit intelligently in the second book, where he says that um, Europeans look, thanks to radio and other technologies, look for their ideas of standard of living, not to the real possibilities of their own lives, but to America. Right? And what he says, and here what he says is very similar to a whole lot of French theory that people of my generation had to read in college. What he says is standard of living is inherently subjective and it's inherently relative. It's not a matter of satisfying people physically. It's not a matter of a certain number of calories. It's a matter of believing that you're not behind anyone else. So this is the second definition of Lebensraum, and Hitler explicitly means this. He says it explicitly, that this is what he has in mind. So he's combining two things. Other people must die in very large numbers, but far away from us, so that we at home can not just survive, but have prosperity. And of course, in Hitler's writings, there's also, there's a very clearly gendered element to this, right? Men must go and kill far away, in order to satisfy the inherently insatiable desire of their wives for a certain standard of living, right? And so there are two ideas of insatiability at play here. Um, We are insatiable because as a a race, we, we need ever more territory, ever more food in order to propagate, right? So our instinct, our basic animal instinct is insatiable. And then there's another insatiability, which is a human insatiability, a political insatiability, or consumer insatiability, or very often one feels in Hitler's writings a female insatiability. We're insatiable because no standard of living is actually high enough, right? So long as we can look across the Atlantic Ocean and see someone else who might be living better, we're not satisfied. So we're also insatiable in that way. So Lebensraum has to accumulate. There has to be more and more and more. This can never end. This is what history looks like, whether it's a biological history or whether it's a political history. And I hope by now you're beginning to feel the politics come a little bit closer, right? Because the notion that standard of living is relative is one that we experience every day. The idea that people somewhere far away can suffer so that we can have a high standard of living, whether we like it or not, is not so distant, right, from the way that we actually exist. So in these ways, I'm trying to help us get through what I take to be a very difficult problem, which is how you connect Hitler's anti-Semitic ideas to political practice, right? Very often what happens in discussions of the Holocaust is a, is a shortcut is taken. 
One says, well, it was all about anti-Semitism, and one refers to Hitler. Fine, but that actually isn't the answer. That's the question. The question is, how could ideas that are so radical, which were not in fact all that popular in Germany or anywhere else, how could ideas that are so radical actually come to inform policy, right? The the answer to to, to the the question of how the Holocaust happened is not anti-Semitism. That's only part of the question. We have to work our way from that radical view into German politics, into human sensibilities, and then beyond Germany. So this brings me to the question of of Germany. In, in, In the familiar way in which the Holocaust is recounted. We spend most of our time working through Hitler's rise to power in 1933, then the so-called Gleichschaltung, and then we go into the Second World War. What I want to suggest is that there's a different way that we ought to be conceiving of this. And this has to do with what Hitler says about the state. And here again, I'm now going to try to break what I take to be a common misunderstanding about the Holocaust. When we think about the Holocaust, we have a tendency to say, The Holocaust was one repressive policy, among others, carried out by a strong state, which cataloged its citizens, bureaucratized them, administered them in a repressive way, concentrated them, and killed them. This is a very very powerful narrative, which comes from Raoul Hilberg, it comes from Hannah Arendt, it comes from Zygmunt Bauman in different ways. What I want to try to suggest is that this is basically wrong. At the level of theory, what Hitler says about the state is actually very interesting. Hitler says that um, the race cannot sacrifice its fundamental goals on the altar of the state. Hitler says in the natural play of the racial struggle, state borders will dissolve. In other words, he does not see the state, even the German state, as something permanent or even as something very important. The state is something which happens to be there, but like everything else, it's there to be manipulated in the service of the race. And by the way, the same is true for the German nation. I think we make a mistake when we think, okay, Hitler was a nationalist like other nationalists, but more so. That's not how Hitler wrote about the German nation. What Hitler said was, German nationalism exists, and it is a tool which, 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 which we can use to propel Germans into war, right? He didn't care about the German folk as such. He believed that German national identity was a political instrument that one could use to throw the Germans into a war in which they would become themselves, in which they would return to their racial essence. Okay, but I'm getting ahead of myself. What I want to talk about now is is the state. Because if we can take a step back from the moment-by-moment narration of Germany in the 1930s, which has been done extremely well, if we can take a step back from that and take Hitler's ideas seriously, we notice something which is very important. There is a basic contradiction between a racial anarchist like Hitler and the seizure of power. If you happen to be a racial anarchist, taking control of a state is actually a kind of problematic, complicated, almost contradictory endeavor. Because your whole worldview, as you've expressed it in a very long book, is that states don't really matter, ideas aren't really solid, the only thing which matters is racial conflict. So how do you solve then this dilemma of of taking control of a state, or of trying to take control of a state? And and here's where things get interesting, because Hitler solves this problem, and in, in my view, this may be the most important element of his politics in the 1930s. Think about the SS, think about the SA take seriously their self-definition as racial institutions. Don't look at their uniforms and think of them as paramilitaries or as para-state organizations. They're not. Think of them seriously as racial institutions. Consider the role that they take in, in Hitler's rise to power. What they do is they discredit existing state institutions by their street fighting, by their brawling, by breaking the law. They discredit the state. They break down the Weberian 
the notional Weberian uh, monopoly on violence. And they do it on purpose, and that helps the Nazis to come to power. Okay, but this is precisely the dilemma. If you come to power with a racial ideology, with the help of racially self-defining groups, what do you do once you have power? Because if those groups are consistent, if they behave consistently with their own ideas, the revolution should continue, 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 continue. The revolution should devour itself, in fact. It should destroy the German state because it's against states, in fact. And this, this I think, is, is the inner meaning of a very well-known event in German history, the Night of the Long Knives. The Night of the Long Knives, as you might remember, is the moment when the SS defeats the SA. It's the moment when the leadership of the SA is exposed as supposedly corrupt, homosexual, and so on. Many of them are killed, many of them are tried, and the SS comes to the fore. The inner meaning of this is as follows. The SA, led by Ernst Röhm, were the people who really thought that the revolution is going to go on. They were the people who took these racial ideas seriously in an almost naive way. They were talking about a second revolution after 1933. The SS proposed something different. What the SS proposed was... We will maintain some kind of law in Germany itself, and later on, we will export the racial potential abroad. And this is the secret to Germany in the 1930s. It's this resolution of this tension. The SS remains a racial anti-political organization. They are biding their time. They are penetrating the police. They are preparing the way to destroy other people's states. If you think about it this way, the concentration camp then takes on a different significance. Because what is a concentration camp? The concentration camps were run by the SS. That was the main thing they did in Germany in the 1930s. What is a concentration camp? All lawyers should know this, especially American lawyers. A concentration camp is a zone without law. By definition, a zone without law. If you think about it that way, the concentration camp in Germany is not so much a zone of exception or only a zone of exception. It is, a, it is an example of what you're going to do once you get beyond Germany, right? Because in effect, when the war starts, what Germany is going to do is to declare whole countries thousands of square miles to be lawless zones. And that's going to create some of the conditions which are going to make the Holocaust possible. So that was, that was anti-Semitism. Now we have to move into international history. Because one can make the case that abstractly, right, Hitler's ideas were anti-state. One can make the case inside Germany that what was happening in the 1930s was not so much just the takeover of a state, but the accumulation of potential to destroy other states, which I think is the right way to think about it. The buildup of the Wehrmacht was the accumulation of potential to destroy other states, and the, 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 the privileging and the support of the SS was the preparation for what you do when those states are defeated militarily. You then destroy them as nations. You destroy them as political units. Okay, but that's all abstract. How does it work concretely? Concretely, Hitler's basic idea of how to engage in international affairs, as we've already seen, is to destroy the Soviet Union. That is, that is the big move. Okay? So all of the things which we in the West really like to remember a lot, like the Battle of Britain or the landing at Normandy or the French Resistance or whatever it might be, whatever was fetishized you know, in your particular high school, these things do not matter from Hitler's point of view. They are all distractions. They're distractions from the main goal. What Hitler is trying to do between 1938 and 1941 is get to a position of fighting the Soviet Union. In fact, he's trying to do it from 1933. And this is the the missing part of the story often because it has to do with um, Polish-German diplomacy and Polish history, especially Polish international history, disappeared behind behind the Iron Curtain at a certain point. But something very interesting is going on. 
So, if you are, so imagine for a minute that you are in the German general staff. If you're looking at the world from Berlin. You know that the main political goal of your leader is the destruction of the Soviet Union. There's a country in between you and the Soviet Union. That country is Poland. It has a pretty decent sized army. What do you do? Hitler issues pretty clear instructions about this beginning in 1934. The basic idea is that Poland is going to be either an ally or a benign neutral in a war against the Soviet Union. And the Germans consistently, from 1933 until the end of 1938, tried to recruit Poland for a war against the Soviet Union. And where Polish and German relations break is precisely at the end of 1938, early 1939, when the Poles, when forced to give an answer, will you or will you not ally with us in the war against the Soviet Union, finally say no. Now, from the Polish point of view, what had been going on is that they had been trying to, per, to keep the Germans uncertain for as long as possible because Polish policy was that we are keeping an equal distance between Germany and the Soviet Union on the logic, reasonable but in the end tragically false, on the logic that Germany can't start a war without us because we're between and the Soviets also can't start a war without us because we're in between. So that is the Polish logic. But there's also another difference. The Germans negotiating with the Poles, and by the Germans I mean high-level people such as Goering and occasionally Hitler himself, are making the case to the Poles that a war against the Soviet Union is also the way to resolve the Jewish question. Now, the Poles are afraid of the Soviet Union, and they are also talking, the Polish leadership is also talking about a Jewish question or a Jewish problem. In fact, it is Poland's explicit policy after 1935 to find a way to rid itself of 90% of its Jewish population. Given that there were more than 3 million Jews in Poland, that's a very large number that we're conjuring with. But what the Poles did not understand is how you combined a war against the Soviet Union with getting rid of the Jews. That was the thing they could not understand because from their point of view, the way to get rid of the Jews was to support right-wing Jewish terrorists who were going to make a lot of trouble in Palestine so that there could be a Jewish state. Now, that's, that's interesting, okay? That's interesting. That, that is part of the prehistory of Israel. That's interesting. But for the argument, it's important, and here's why. From the Nazi point of view, anti-Semitism is part of this racial anarchy, right? The Nazi anti-Semitic view is that the Jews are the ones who are in the way of a racial struggle, which is non-political. The Polish point of view is different. The Polish point of view is very much attached to the state. They don't understand that the Nazis are about racial anarchy. They don't get that. But what they do understand is that the way to handle whatever problem they're defining, even what they see as the struggle against Jews, is by way of states. Right? So you either negotiate with the British or behind their back you find a way to create a state in Palestine and then you can get the Jews sent off there. So this actually is one of the factors that leads to the Second World War because Germany proposes to Poland the joint attack and in the end Poland says no. Okay, now why have I spent all this time on this? Well, partly because I want, I want to emphasize the point that there are different kinds of anti-Semitism, right? That it's not just a matter of turning up a dial or turning down a dial or answering like who is more anti-Semitic, the Poles or the Germans or something like that. There, there, there are issues of quality here which matter, especially when the quality has to do with the state. And we'll see more about that, why that's, why that's true soon. But where we've gotten to in history is the moment where Germany starts to destroy states, where this theory of state destruction actually becomes practice, where the SS are allowed out of Germany. Because remember, inside Germany, what the SS can do to the German population is actually rather limited. The concentration camps are terrible places, but there are a few thousand inmates. It's only when the SS gets beyond Germany, beyond German law institutions practices, that the SS begins to do truly radical things. So let me now take a slight step back. 
Austria falls apart in March of 1938, the Anschluss. This means that suddenly lots of Austrian Jews are no longer citizens. They're forced to scrub the streets. Um, tens of thousands of them are, are, are basically expatriated very quickly from Austria. Why is that so interesting? It's interesting because in about six weeks, Austrian Jews suffer about as much as German Jews had done in the previous six years. And that is despite the fact that in Austria there were no Nuremberg laws. There was no political, legal discrimination of Jews. But basically from one day to the next, with the end of the Austrian state, Jews lost their protection from the state. And then you can do things with them that you could not do in Germany, right? That's interesting. There was a limit to that, ironically, because Austria was brought into Germany itself. And the moment that Austria was joined to Germany, then things had to actually calm down rather than accelerate. Czechoslovakia is destroyed over the course of 1938 and 1939. By this time, Jews know what's coming. They know that the civil code is going to go away. They sell their property. They run. So, so, so the, the state destruction of Czechoslovakia leads to a similar consequence. But Poland, this is where I'm going with this. Poland is special because Poland is where Hitler finally gets his war. It's not the war he had wanted. It's not a war he had planned. It's not a war that he expected. But when he made war against Poland, it was the first war that he prosecuted while actively destroying the state. When he talks to his high officers in July, August 1939, right before the war, August 1939, early September 1939, what he tells them is that this war is not, about, is not like other wars. It's not about territory. It's not about victory. It's not about seizing a certain amount of land. It's about destroying Poland as a state and as a nation as a state and as a nation. In other words, not just about um, destroying the Polish army, but about coming <coughs> into the country, declaring that the civil code no longer functions, the Polish state does not exist. This is where it gets interesting. The Polish state has never existed. Right? So the claim that they make when they enter Poland is basically the same kind of claim that European imperialists made beyond Europe. That the territory we're entering is uninhabited, at least in the sense of uninhabited by political beings. So Poland is treated colonially in the sense that the Polish state is not acknowledged as an institution, actively not acknowledged. And the people who are thought to represent it, whether they are military officers, whether they are civilian politicians, whether they are Roman Catholic priests, are physically eliminated, killed in the tens of thousands. And that's not an accident. That's part of the idea of destroying the Polish state. Now, the destruction of the Polish state then, this new radical step, moves the final solution forward. It allows for things that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. In this situation, for example, something like a ghetto is possible. So when you think of the ghetto, you may think about it in terms of terrible images and human suffering, and that's all true. But from a lawyerly point of view, the ghetto is a violation of property rights. Okay? It's a violation of habeas corpus. What happens to the Jews is the moment where the Polish civil code goes away, they no longer have the right to remain where they are. That may seem like an almost trivializing way to look at the ghetto, but it's actually very important. The Germans deliberately take away rights from everyone, which means that anything is possible. When Jews are put, taken to the ghetto, that means they lose the right to live where they lived in that part of the city or in the surrounding countryside. And it means that other people can take their property, which is extremely important, right? Because that means that millions of people are immediately implicated in a certain way in what's happening, if only in the very simple sense, which it turns out to be pretty fundamental, of not wanting their Jewish neighbors to come back. You're listening to Timothy Snyder on the Holocaust. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get CDs of this program and Eduardo Galeano's book, Open Veins of Latin America, Five Centuries of the Pillage of a Continent 
by calling us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, or MP3s of this program at no charge. Just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. The German destruction of the Polish state opens a path towards the settlement. It opens a path towards ghettos. It makes things possible that hadn't been possible before. But I'm going to note something which is interesting. The German invasion of Poland is in September 1939. The Germans don't invade the Soviet Union until almost two years later, June of 1941. In those intervening two years, Jews suffer. Tens of thousands of Jews die. Mostly these are Jews from the countryside who have to come to the cities, who have to come to the ghettos, who don't have personal connections. That's the key factor. If you come from the countryside, you tend to lose everything, and also you tend not to know anybody in this new ghetto where you arrive. And those are the people in the huge majority who die. And the figures are in the tens of thousands in Warsaw, which is a hor- something like 60,000 in Warsaw, which is a horrible figure. But the point that I'm trying to make is that this is not yet a Holocaust. The Germans are not actually taking Jews out in large numbers and killing them. Um, Jews are dying, but the way that they're dying is not yet this thing that we think of as a Holocaust. And this is where I want to stop and pause and just emphasize this point. You can go all the way through German history, all the way up to 1939, from 1933 to 1939 in Germany. The total number of Jews killed is about 200. So the first six years of, of Hitler's power, the total number of Jews killed is about 200. You can even go into the war in Poland and the creation of the ghetto. And the total number of Jews who die is in the high tens of thousands before the war in the Soviet Union, which is awful, but it is not yet the Holocaust. And what I'm trying to resist is the kind of story which says things kind of just got worse and worse and worse and somehow we slipped into mass killing. What I'm trying to claim is that they did not slip into mass killing, that there was a particular moment which was a turning point for reasons um, which I'm going to try to explain, and that turning point is the invasion of the Soviet Union. Okay. Now, there's some reasons that we all know why the invasion of the Soviet Union would be important, why it might be critical. The Germans fought the Soviets in what they called a war of extermination, Vernichtung. The idea from the very beginning, I mean, from Mein Kampf forward, was the destruction of the Soviet Union, the enslavement of its peoples, the starvation of its peoples, the seizure of its territories. Germany invades the Soviet Union with the, with the largest armed force ever assembled in the history of the world. Um, that armed force is followed by Einsatzgruppen, who are tasked to, to kill the Soviet political classes, a point I'm going to return to in a moment. There are reasons why we would expect all of that to accelerate mass killing. But there's another reason which often gets overlooked. It has to do with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. It's the agreement between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany which began the Second World War. We might have had a Second World War that began in a different way. In fact, it began with a Soviet-German agreement called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Nevertheless, if you read the history of the Holocaust, if, even if you're very, very deeply immersed in it, you won't know about the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact because it's usually not even mentioned. And I think here we're, we're right at the nexus of a basic problem in the literature, which I'm going to try to solve in the next 45 seconds. Okay? So the, the basic problem is this. When Germany invades the Soviet Union, it's a massive war, war of extermination. It very easily almost exceeds the imagination. And when you read prose about this moment, June 22, 1941, it's very often like the prose is so, is so broad and so grandiose that you forget what's actually at play. What's actually at play? 
When the Germans invade the Soviet Union, they're not invading the Soviet Union. They're invading territories that the Soviet Union has just taken from Poland, and they're invading the Baltic states. Okay, The first few days and weeks of the invasion are not in the pre-war Soviet Union. They're in territories which the Soviet Union has just invaded. Now, we struggle with this. We struggle and struggle and struggle because geography is not our strong suit. And the Europeans struggle and struggle and struggle because Polish geography is not their strong suit. Um, but, but this is really important because what it means is that when the, when the Germans invade the Soviet Union on the 22nd of June, 1941, what they are encountering is territory where the Soviets have themselves just invaded and where the Soviets have themselves just carried out policies of state destruction, which are actually rather mature, rather efficient, and rather well carried out compared to the German equivalents. It's not that the Soviet intentions are worse, I wouldn't want to say that, but their practices are actually rather more effective um, than the German ones. So when the Germans arrive, they're encountering a Sovietized population. They're encountering a population where the elites have already been murdered or deported, they're encountering a situation where expropriation has already happened, right? The Soviets didn't expropriate Jews as such. They expropriated everybody. But in towns and cities in this part of Europe, the, the trading class and the professional classes were, were very largely Jewish, which meant that de facto the Soviets had already expropriated the Jews. And there's a political factor. The political factor is huge. The Soviets had eliminated the Estonian, Latvian, and, and Lithuanian states entirely. Now, this is why the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact is so hard, because the Lithuanians, the Lithuanians and the Estonians, they don't want you to forget about the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact because it extinguished their sovereignty. They want you to know that it happened because they want you to know how bad the Soviet Union was. Okay, fine. But there's another reason why the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact matters so much, and that is that it prepares the way for what's going to happen next to Jews. Simple overall general claim. When a state is destroyed, this is worse not for the national majorities. The end of a state is worse for national minorities. And if you're not, if you're not with me, just think for a minute about what's happening in Syria. The examples can be multiplied and multiplied. Okay? So the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact is actually most significant for Jews. And here's why. When the Germans enter into these territories, they find that they have opportunities that they did not know that they had. What they thought was going to happen, and this was kind of their Nazi naivete, was that the local inferior subhuman peoples were going to rise up against their Jewish communist masters and carry out lots of pogroms. Now, there were many pogroms. Every single one of them took place after the Germans arrived and instigated it in one way or another. Those pogroms were awful, but they did not lead in a straight line to the final solution. What happens instead is, in a way, much worse. What happens instead is that the Germans arrive in a situation where essentially everyone had been, this is the tricky political part, essentially everyone had been implicated in the Soviet project. The difference between the Soviet project and the Nazi project is that the Nazi project is racial. So it includes some, but it excludes most. The Soviet project, whatever its flaws, is inclusive. It's about including everyone. When the Soviet Union expands, it brings what it has at home to you. It brings its same system to you. It equalizes. Which means that as of 1941, to a degree that the Germans could not have understood and did not understand, local populations, whether they're Lithuanians or Jews or Russians, it doesn't matter, had been implicated in the Soviet system. Now, the Germans come punching into this territory with their Judeo-Bolshevik idea. Right? They come in here saying the Jews are communists and the communists are Jews. And that creates the opportunity for a politics which the Germans themselves don't understand. What happens is that non-Jews, who are of course the majority of the Soviet collaborators, say, oh yes, of course, 
the Jews are communists and the communists are Jews, because that is their way out of their Soviet past, right? That is the thing which makes them safe under the German occupation. And that is the dynamic which allows Jews, whether, regardless of how much they collaborated, to be punished and killed, okay? And then, once Jews are killed for being communists, whether they were or not, very often by people who were communists, incidentally, when that happens, it then has to be true, you see? So the, once you kill Jews for being communists, then for generations to come, and I'm talking right up to the present, people then have to believe that the Jews were communists. Because the idea that you killed them for nothing, which is what happened, or the idea that you killed them for your own collaboration, is unbearable. And from that source, we get the ethnic stereotypes that prevail today. Okay, that was a long explanation. There's another, there's another politics here, which is really important. Imagine that... Um, an entire state which you are from is wiped out, right? Imagine that Canada is wiped out by America, France is wiped out, but just let your imaginations roam free, okay? It's not something that we generally have to deal with in the West, although it does happen in other places. What happens then is that a political resource is created, right? If Lithuania, for example, is destroyed, then there are going to be a certain number of Lithuanians who are going to be ready to collaborate with whatever is coming next, right? And the story that the Germans set, tell them is, um, these more educated, these more political collaborators is the project we want you to collaborate with is the destruction of the Jews and then all conversations about other politics follow that. Now, I'm not trying to remove responsibility from these people and I'm not trying to say that the Soviets were worse and it was all their fault. What I'm trying to do is say the dest prior destruction of states is what makes that politics possible. If Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia are not destroyed then you can't have Lithuanians who are willing to collaborate. Generally, we call these people nationalists, and many of them were. But I would just point out that many of us would have a certain reaction if our state were completely destroyed by one of its neighbors. You don't have to be a nationalist to think that that's a bad thing and to believe that something ought to be done to restore it. So what happens then is that with the invasion of the Soviet Union in the summer of 1941, the final solution then becomes a holocaust. And I almost want to say finally becomes a holocaust because it's eight years after Hitler has come to power. And a very particular thing has to happen. What happens, to make it very brief, is that the Einsatzgruppen come through. They realize that local people can be recruited to collaborate. This is not part of the plan. There's no plan. Very important. There's no plan. Hitler personally forbids arming local people. But they do it anyway, within days. Local people can be recruited. They can be recruited for these various political, economic, and sometimes anti-Semitic or nationalist reasons. Um, that one can form militias, auxiliary police, and that one can kill the Jews. An opportunity emerges which hadn't been there before. And what the Germans realize is that this notion that the Jews can be eradicated has now taken on a form. A form which they had not planned for, which they had not anticipated, and I, I think honestly they did not expect, which is that the Jews can be killed where they lived. The Germans learned this in practice. They learned it about locals, I've been emphasizing this, but they also learned it about themselves. So when the Einsatzgruppen come in, there's no reason to doubt that they're going to follow orders. Their orders are, and this is, this is important, to destroy the Soviet political class. Just like their orders in 1939 in Poland were to destroy the Polish political class. The Soviet political class, though, is defined as being heavily Jewish. So when they come in, they're killing lots of people, but many of them are Jews of military age. This slips very quickly into being all Jews, right? And it slips partly because of locals, but not entirely. It also has to do with the fact that the Germans turn out to be able to recruit themselves. 
The Einsatzgruppen did not kill most of the Jews on the Eastern Front. The German order police, the, order, the uniform police, the people who help you across the street, those people killed more Jews than the Einsatzgruppen. They were present at every major mass killing, and in the end of the day, they're probably more significant. The Wehrmacht also kills a very large number of Jews. The Germans did not know, the Nazi leadership did not know that their own people in conditions of statelessness, in these very special conditions of anarchy, could be brought in to this project. And that is how the Holocaust proves to be possible. It proves to be possible in this condition of double state destruction during the invasion of the Soviet Union because enough locals and enough Germans will take part. Now, this is important because it's the fact of killing which makes the final solution seem plausible. If we remember, there weren't, the gassing facilities don't exist yet. And they are a consequence of all this, not a cause. If we remember, there's no plan. There's not a plan. There's no plan about how this is to be done. This is learned in practice. And so the, the, it's the weight of the brute fact that a million Jews are murdered by December 1941, which makes a final solution seem plausible. Now, once you realize that, as Hitler seems very clearly to have done right around December 1941, once you realize that a final solution is possible in this way that you had not anticipated, well, then you press forward. You press forward into the pre-war Soviet Union, where very high percentages of Jews are killed, well over 90%, and you move backwards into Poland. And in Poland, also very high numbers, well over 90% of Jews are killed. The Jews are, remember, already gathered in ghettos, and they can be sent from the, from the ghettos to gassing facilities. Now, the gassing facilities, just to make a point very briefly, the gassing facilities are not the result of some far-ranging plan. They are not the emanation of high technology or enlightenment or anything like that. They are the result of a series of improvisations designed to reduce the number of Germans who have to kill face-to-face. The Germans start gassing with vans in the east. Um, They do it so they don't have to look at children while they're killing them. The technology involved is just shunting the exhaust pipe back into the hold of the van. That's not high technology, right? It's very easy. Um, The next innovation or technology, if you like, technique, is that you park the vans take the wheels off, put them on blocks. That's Helm, though. The next innovation is that you take the internal combustion engine out of the vehicle. That's it. And then you pipe the exhaust into a sealed chamber. That's Treblinka, Belzec, Sobibor. The next innovation after that is Auschwitz, where once you've realized you can use a sealed chamber, use hydrogen cyanide instead of exhaust. This is not high technology, right? This is improvisation basically based on what's to hand. So as I see it, the crucial thing is the learning that this can be done. The technique is not so crucial. And when we get it backwards, what I'm trying to say is, when we have this image of Auschwitz as some kind of end of history or modernity or some kind of black hole or some kind of poetic something or other, we're preventing ourselves from seeing this historically. Because Auschwitz is actually a kind of side effect of the Holocaust. Now, it's not the Holocaust. It's, a, it's one technique of carrying out the Holocaust. Very late. Okay. Now, the largest massacre that happens, or the first large-scale massacre which takes place is at a town that you have not heard of, a city that you've not heard of, called Kamyanets Podilsky. Kamyanets Podilsky is in southwestern Ukraine. Um, in Kamyanets Podilsky, at the end of August 1941, around 23,600 Jews are shot. Nothing like that had ever happened before in the history of the world. Unfortunately, things like that would then continue to happen. A few weeks later in Babiyar, outside Kiev, um, 33,761 Jews would be shot. But it's Kamyanets Podilsky which proved it was possible. And I want to dwell on this place because it reveals something important about this argument from the state. 
Thus far, what I've tried to claim is that it's the acceleration of the process of state destruction, the mutation of the German state, destruction of Austria, Czechoslovakia, increasingly violently Poland and the Soviet Union, which enables the Holocaust to happen. Let's now reverse the field and ask, um, how does the state protect Jews, or why is the state relevant to Jews? Kamyanets Podilski shows us something very important. When Czechoslovakia was destroyed in 1938 and 1939, it was divided up into various bits. One of the bits was Subcarpathian Ruthenia. Subcarpathian Ruthenia is taken by Hungary. Hungary does not recognize the Jews in Subcarpathian Ruthenia as its citizens. When Germany invades the Soviet Union in 1941, what does Hungary do? It expels those Jews from Subcarpathian Ruthenia eastward over the Soviet border right into the path of the Germans. And that is what prompts the massacre at Kamianets Podilski. Now, the reason why I stress that is that it all begins with the destruction of Czechoslovakia. Um, and it's possible because Hungary doesn't recognize the citizenship of its own Jews. And this is actually key, because whether we, whether we want to see this or not, and often we don't, the passport actually stops the bullet. The Germans' aspirations are total, and their achievements are horrifying, but... What they will not do is kill Jews who are recognized as citizens by states. So other states take part in the Holocaust insofar as they depatriate their own citizens. They take citizenship away and send them away. That happens sometimes, but it doesn't happen always. Or to put this in a very general way, if you are a Jew on territory which was rendered stateless, your chance of surviving was less than 1 in 20. If you were a Jew on a territory where there was a state, your chance of surviving was one in two, which is horrible. It's worse than anyone else in the Second World War, but it's very different, a whole order of magnitude different from one in 20. But the point is that once you move out of the zone of statelessness into the rest of Europe, it becomes harder. I'll just give you a couple of more very brief observations about this. Consider the following things. In France, 75% of the Jews survive. In the Netherlands, 75% die. Is that because the French are less anti-Semitic than the Dutch? No one thought so at the time, including the Jews. No one thinks so now, including historians. I mean, these are not just stereotypes. The reason why is that the Netherlands were the only country in Western Europe where the SS, um, the state destroyers, are in charge of the occupation. And that makes all the difference. Or consider the Holocaust in France. Here's something astounding. More Polish Jews die in the Holocaust in France than French Jews. And of course, there are many, 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 many more French Jews than Polish Jews. The reason why in absolute numbers more Polish Jews die is that they have no state protection, right? Which means that the French state is indifferent to their fate. In fact, they're the kind of people that the French state wants to get rid of. So if you, run, if you look at it this way, each story is different, right? You have to tell the story of Hungary and Romania and Italy in detail. But the general rule is very clear. The more sovereignty there is the better off the Jews are going to be. And roughly speaking, this is for three reasons, which I've already suggested. The first is citizenship. If you are a citizen and your state does not take your citizenship away, you're going to survive. The Germans are not going to take you as a Romanian Jew into Auschwitz in 1943 because Romania doesn't want you to go, so they won't take you. Um, the second is foreign policy. If you're a sovereign state, you can decide that the Americans and the British care a lot about your Jews, which was not really as true as anti-Semitic governments thought it was, but you can decide the Americans and the British care a lot about your Jews, and you can switch sides, and to signal that you're switching sides, you can change your Jewish policy, which is what Romania did and what Hungary tried to do. The third thing which matters is bureaucracy. Now, in the literature on the Holocaust, bureaucracy has a bad name. 
but bureaucracy is not what killed the Jews. The German bureaucrats never even decided in, in the, to the end what, German, what, what a Jew was. The German bureaucracy does not kill any Jews inside Germany. The only way to kill Jews is to send them to bureaucracy-free zones, which you yourself have created. Where do the German Jews die? They die in Riga, they die in Minsk, they die in Łódź. They die in cities which before the war were thriving Jewish metropolises, but which German occupation transformed into the black holes that are described in German Jewish memoirs. We look at these cities through the lenses of the German Jews who go there, and we see them as, a, as places of death. But they were made into places of death by the, by the destruction of the states around them. Okay. This, in turn, instructs us as to what rescue means. So I'm going to now try to tell you a very practical and, I hope, plausible account of how rescuing Jews was possible. Um, if, if you've come this far, then you'll already know who the main rescuers are going to be. The main rescuers of Jews are diplomats. Why? Because diplomats um, are the people who are capable of giving you a piece of paper which gives you state recognition. Right. So therefore, the Chinese consul in Vienna could rescue a couple thousand Jews. Therefore, Raoul Wallenberg, he was an amateur Swedish diplomat who came to Budapest, um, he saved thousands of Jews by giving them transit papers. Or Sugihara, the Japanese consul in Kaunas in Lithuania, also saved thousands of Jews by giving them transit papers. Diplomats were the people who could save, they were the only people, in fact, who could save very large numbers of Jews because they had the power to extend state recognition. When you move down from the diplomats, it becomes a little bit cloudier. Churches, sometimes yes, but usually no. When you work your way all the way down to individuals, the righteous few, you find yourself in a very unusual zone. Because it turns out, and this is not surprising, though it's sobering, it turns out that people who can rescue without institutional support, surrounded by conditions of anarchy, when the incentive structures are all pointed towards giving Jews away or killing them, there are not very many people like that. And when you reach those people, you're actually reaching the end of the history, in a way. You're reaching the end of the story, because you're reaching into a place that you cannot explain structurally. Because these people are behaving in a way which you cannot account for by traditional motivation. Right? There's a motivation is something that connects you to the outside world. This is not generally something these people have. They generally have something which the people who, who, who they rescued describe as humanity. That's a word which appears a lot, menschlichkeit. Um, something which actually seems to go beyond the context. These tend to be people who take moral norms a little bit too literally. And therefore, their hold on moral norms is less affected when the whole world around them changes. There are not that many people like that. Which brings me to the conclusion. If, if this account of the Holocaust is anything like correct, then we need to build much beyond the idea of following the rescuers and seeing them as an example. Because in the conditions in which the Holocaust took place, not many of us would be able to do that. I think there's no particular case to make that we have learned. In fact, I'm extremely skeptical of that. I tend to think that we've learned the thing which is most convenient to us, which has to do with identity. And the problem with identity is the moment that times get tough, your identity changes and you forget your previous identity. You put someone else in a barn and burn them and you blame them for your previous identity and it's all over. That's what happens, not just to Poles in 1941, but to everybody. So I, I worry about identity as the lesson that we should learn. I worry even about ethics as the only lesson that we should learn. It seems like there are structural lessons, and there are two of them, and they're fairly clear. One of them is that this ecological panic is politics. We've been bracketed from that by the Green Revolution. The, the people in the West of the last three generations are the only people in the history of the world for whom food has not been a political issue. What if that changes? Or what if the perception of that changes? And I don't mean just in America, but what if in a place like China? 
which is already leasing 10% of the arable soil in Ukraine and which is already, in effect, colonizing a great deal of East Africa. Is an idea of Lebensraum today so implausible for a place like China, an industrial power which is not able to secure its own food supplies and so on? Ecological panic can strike at many different levels. There's the local level, like Rwanda, Sudan, Syria today. And then there's the regional level. And then there's the global level, where I think China and Africa is perhaps a place to watch. The second lesson has to do with the state. Both from the right and from the left, um, we have drawn conclusions about from the Holocaust, which have to do with the need to weaken or fragment or limit the state. I think this is exactly backwards. Um, The lesson of the Holocaust is that states protect, even imperfect states, even flawed states, protect citizens. And so as important as debates about what kind of state it should be and what the ideology should be, um, the state itself turns out to be a good. And so I would draw at least the very limited conclusion that wars like the American war in Iraq in 2003 or the Russian war in Ukraine in 2014, which used the Holocaust as moral cover for destroying states, I'd make the minimal claim that that's a mistake. And I would make the maximal claim that bolstering states as a positive good or bolstering institutions which bolster states is probably a rather good thing. Now, these are the lessons that I would draw here, not because I think individual behavior is unimportant. It's that I think that they're all but unattainable and that we have to be realistic about the historical setting. And being realistic about the historical setting means acting at moments when you can act rather than waiting for that sensation of panic to come and the belief that you can't actually do things. That's what, that's what Hitler cultivated, that sense that you can do nothing except strike out. Right? We are never very far away from that, but I think if we take the history of the Holocaust seriously, we can learn some of the mechanisms to keep our distance from that. So that's what I would take the public policy lessons of all this to be. Thank you very much. You were just listening to Timothy Snyder on the Holocaust. Timothy Snyder is Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale University and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. He's the author of Black Earth on Tyranny and Our Malady. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of this program, Timothy Snyder on the Holocaust, and for Eduardo Galeano's book, Open Veins of Latin America, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Call us at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org.
alternativeradio.org. Uh, we, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. CGSW, 90.9 FM, traveling from the University of Calgary, the land of the people of the Treaty 7, Media Nation of Alberta, Region 3, musical destinations unknown. Oh boy! Oh, oh, oh. 